Lord, as we look at your word, I pray you give us wisdom, understand your truth. I pray you give me strength, Lord, to share what you want me to share, that would be faithful to your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bible this morning, Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. We continue this morning looking at God's design for the church. And our text is focusing right now on verses 5 through 9. We started last week looking at the qualifications of an elder, and we're going to continue this morning looking at that. Let's go back and read, if you would, with me in verse 5. Paul says, this is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. When you think about the characteristics of the leaders of the Church of Jesus Christ, a couple of passages are helpful to see this. If you want to turn, keep your hand in Titus. And, but look over at 1 Peter chapter 5. I want to look at a couple of passages that just demonstrate the necessity of godly leadership. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter says something interesting to the elders. In verse 1 of 1 Peter 5, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as our partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. And notice what he tells them to do. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but notice what he says, but being examples to the flock. It's easy to think of the ministry position and forget that God is calling leaders to a godly character, a godly character that shines in the background in their ministry function. I'll read you this passage. It would be one that if you're taking notes to jot down, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Verse 12 through 14, listen to this. Fight the good fight of the faith, Paul writing to Timothy. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it, this call goes to the life of the leader 
this call goes to the life of the people that lead the church of Jesus Christ. When we look at our text this morning, I want to review with you just a couple of things. Last week, we started out by looking at this is a man who is to be above reproach in regard to his life and his family. He's to be a faithful man. He's to be a man known as a one-woman man, a husband of one wife. Again, I don't think that this is saying that he has to be married, that he has to be a man who has never experienced divorce. There, I think, were people that potentially could have come out of the pagan world that had gone through a divorce before they came to Christ. There's other situations that can take place. It's one of those situations where it's hard to give examples, but the point is that this is a man who is a one-woman man. He's known for faithfulness. He's marked by loyalty to his wife. And, and if that's not there, that compromises his leadership position. It's interesting because that goes on and speaks about his children, has children, it says, who believe. His children are believers. We looked at that last time, but I wanted to look at another passage real fast. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verses 1 through 7 gives the characteristics of an elder. And in that text, it says something really interesting. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. And I think that's the point of what Paul is saying. If we look at the complementary text in Timothy, I think we understand that the word believe here is acting as an adjective. He must have faithful children. And I think it's speaking, I think the NIV commentary, application commentary hits the heart of this. He says that the commentary says, the elders to manage his family well and to see that his children obey him with proper respect. I think that's the heart of what he's saying. He's saying that can he manage his family? And that's what happens in the context here. He uses that word steward, that the elder acts as a steward. I was looking up some information about what does it mean to be a steward? That's what he's referred to. A steward in ancient Greek, according to one commentary, managed a household on behalf of the owner. Many had considerable responsibility and authority. In addition to caring for all the needs of family members, they could be responsible and accountable for household finances and for making sure the crops were properly planted, cultivated, and harvested. You think about a steward and all that was given to them to oversee. And you think, okay, how does this work in the parallel that Paul is making to the local church? And he seems to be saying, look, take it serious that a man is above reproach, that his life is not there for accusation of marked sinfulness or marked negligence. And he seems to say, look, if something is as serious as the management of the household of God, how can a person properly care for the household of God if he can't properly care in the management of his own family? That seems to be the heart 
of what Paul is saying. And then as we continue to move here, he gets into several areas how he needs to be above reproach. He moves into his personality. He moves into the dealings that he has with fellow people. He starts out with the family, and then he repeats what he just said in a different way. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. And then he gives five areas that he's not to be known by. Look what he says. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. These are areas that need to be absent in his life, not not to be an arrogant guy, a quick-tempered guy. What does it mean to be arrogant? Well, the Greek word here means that one who is pleased with himself and despises others. That's not the kind of person you want as an elder in the church. One who is pleased with himself and despises others. I I found it interesting. One one pastor said it this way, and and notice this. The world usually looks to the aggressive, self-assertive person for leadership. Wouldn't you agree? That's celebrated in the world. If you want to lead at the highest levels of many different companies, a self-assertive, aggressive person typically fits the bill. But the person goes on to say here, but those characteristics disqualify a man for leadership in the church, where a self-willed man has no place. Every believer and certainly every church leader must continually fight the battle against fleshly self-will, self-fulfillment, self-glory. And, and Paul says here to Titus, he says, look, he, he's setting him there in Crete to set the church in order. And he's saying, look, man, we can't call people to the highest leader position in the church if they're arrogant, if they're self-willed. If they're self-willed, it's going to stain the church of Jesus Christ. And and, and this idea of, I find it interesting because when you look at the opposite of what arrogant is in a lexicon, it's the word appropriate, a person who's gentle, a person who's noble, a person who's gracious, but not the arrogant man. The arrogant man is self-willed. He's self-willed. The danger is this. The danger is is that you take a ministry position as significant as an elder in a church and that one would aspire to be in that position and then the power gets to his flesh. And then he likes the position. He likes the position. He likes the notoriety. He likes the ability to think, you know what? I must be something pretty good. That's the danger, not arrogant. He's not an arrogant man. He is a humble man. It's fascinating because this word is used one other place in the New Testament. And it's used to speak of uh, the the, the troubled false teachers in 2 Peter chapter 2. He says, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority... And speaking of these people in 2 Peter, Peter says, bold and willful. That's the word. Bold and arrogant. Willful. They're willful in the way that they live. They're willful in the way 
that they seek to lead. He continues on here. He, he's got several different ones he used. Not quick-tempered. You ever been around somebody that, I mean, we all have lost our temper before. And, but here he's speaking of someone who's known and marked by a short fuse. Somebody you better not cross. I, um, I can, we can all think of uh, people. I spent a lot of my life in a gym, and I had, a, I had several coaches that had short tempers. <laughs> they had a quick fuse. That may or may not work on a basketball court. That's up for debate. That doesn't work in the church of Jesus Christ. And when you think about a person who's a quick-tempered, uh, remind, think about how Paul says to Timothy, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And so you've got as this picture of... Uh, God calling um, leadership to servant leadership that's not arrogant and not ready to blow off. You know, you deal with a lot of different people within the church of Jesus Christ. And when we think about patience, uh, there's a word in the Greek. It's, uh, there, there, there's, a, there's an endurance in circumstances, but there's an endurance with people. And, 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 it's, and it speaks of who do you need endurance with? What kind of people? The people that are easy to deal with? No. The people that you think came from another planet. The people that are tempted to drive you nuts. Now, I want you to think about something here, and we'll see this later on. This is an individual who's been humbled by the grace of God doesn't mean they're perfect. It means by the grace of God, they become predictable. What does that mean? If they're not perfect, are they prone to potentially sin in this area? Yeah, they are, because 1 John says, if we're without sin, we're liars and the truth is not in us. But it's not to mark their behavior. And so think about it. What would a godly leader do that lost it? What would be the appropriate godly response? Confession, repentance. It, it, it really is interesting because I, my, my father really helped me with this years ago, and he helped me with it by giving examples of how he had blown it and giving examples of how God used difficult people in the churches he pastored to drive him to the end of himself. Because when we face difficult people, we're not to be quick-tempered, but we're called to patience. We're called to endure patiently with difficult personalities, with difficult agendas. And the person here is not quick-tempered. It is um, a mark of leadership to not blow off every time you get irritated at someone who comes to you. The next one is not drunkard, not a drunkard. I think the passage here, you know, uh, it, in the scripture, we're not prohibited to drink, we're prohibited to be drunk. But, but the challenge is this, Ephesians 
Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. The mark of the leader in the church of Jesus Christ, he's not filled with any other substance. He's not under the, under the control of alcohol. He's not under the control of a drug. He's not under the control of any type of substance because it compromises his ability to walk controlled by the Holy Spirit of God. So we see that this is to mark his life, to mark his character. And, and, I, and I think it's important because in the context of all that is said about alcohol in the New Testament, we think about the weaker brother. We think about those that um, think differently in the body of Christ. I think sometimes the, the challenge is that um, those over here, you want to pull them over here. Those over here, you want to pull them over here. And you constantly want to encourage both sides to regard the other as more important than themselves to take your freedoms not as an excuse to act in such a way that is hurtful or shameful to your brother, at the same time to not disregard another person's freedom. Isn't it amazing? Have you ever been in a situation where you had two little kids and they were talking to one another and he said, come here, come here, let's talk. And isn't it amazing that if we would just take their, the advice we gave to little ones, we'd be in a much better place? When, when Ben and Will are fighting over something, I could look at them and say, hey, look, hey, do you think that, can, can you look out for him and what he wants? I mean, there's never any arguments about iPads in our house, never. I told someone once, I said, you know, we've got it really down. I, we, we try to keep it appropriate. Uh, we only allow them to play the iPad about 22 hours a day. That's all. But, but you see it, don't you? You see what we struggle with when we see it in other people. You see it in kids. And, and whether it's your grandkids, your own kids, your siblings, whatever, what you are so quick to notice in the way they handle selfishness, you see it so quick because it's something you understand, right? And, and what does Paul say in regards to being conscious of the fact of the weaker brother. He said, it is, not good, it is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. So I'll tell you, one of the things you got to watch out for is if anybody will boast of their freedoms they have in Christ but disregards the weaker brother, watch out. Watch out. It'll become a dangerous freedom. And here we see that this man has a relationship with drink that is godly, that is healthy, that is righteous. But then he says not violent. The word violent means striker. Striker. I remember um, there was a gentleman. Isn't it interesting that uh, because of the internet and because of, uh, I mean, we have access to some incredible preaching at this time in our life in the world. And uh, there, there, there's godly guys that have influenced me over the years. A lot of them I never even knew. And, and, and the way they handled themselves. And, and there was one guy in my mid-30s that, that made an impact on me. But yet over the years, do you know what disqualified this guy? He was a striker. 
he became a striker. You say, what is that? He was a guy, listen to the definition, figuratively a reviler, one who by reproachful and upbraiding language wounds the conscience of his brethren, a contentious person, a quarreler. And what became sadly known about this individual is the way he berated his fellow leaders. It became known that this man who was an eloquent expositor of God's word, when he got behind closed doors and he didn't like something that was happening amongst fellow leadership, he sometimes would just curse at them, just go off. And what did it show? He was a striker. He was a man that was acting violently. Now, that could be somebody who is ready to pop off and punch you, you know, somebody that is ready to fight, but that could be known in the way that they speak. It could be the same temperament, the same attitude. I tell you, it's humbling, isn't it? Because if, if you look at a list like this, and you self-righteously on every one of them say, I'm glad I'm not that. I'm glad I'm not that. I don't really trust you. I don't know if I really want to trust you about anything. If you can't see yourself in need of the grace of God in every one of these attributes, again, I wonder if you've ever understood the gospel. Because when I look at lists like this, I know the propensity in my own heart. I know what my flesh is capable of. I know how irritated I can get driving down Broad Street when someone's going 25. I know how irritated I can be in my neighborhood when certain people get behind me that are like 16 years old, going about 80 miles an hour in a 25, right? We all know that. Now, now, now listen, though, what is the key here? It's not a person has achieved a level of human goodness. No, it's a person is under submission to the lordship of Christ. A person in their weakness who's drawing on the strength and the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's not that the people that need to lead the church of Jesus Christ are the ones who have their act together. No, when none of us have our act together, these people are marked by walking by the Spirit. They're marked by humbling themselves before the Word of God. They're marked by bowing and yielding to Christ when their flesh is seeking to go the other direction. That's what happens here. They still struggle but by the grace of God, they're being led a different way. They're not greedy for gain. You know, money's not the problem. Where the problem really takes place is love of money. A love of money. I was, uh, when I was in Romania in April and preaching to those uh, precious pastors from all over, I'll tell you what, I, mean, I wish you could all be there with me when I go. You talk about just the sweetest people. I remember though something about those people that, that my dad taught me. He said back in the 80s, he'd go under communism in Romania, and he'd say, you know what's interesting? He said, everybody in America celebrates the church under communism, but they don't realize they deal with their flesh just like we do. And I'll never forget that. Those special, precious people, they relate to all of this because just because they're European 
in areas of the world that are going through persecution doesn't mean they don't deal with their flesh. But you know what's amazing? All of us have the same problem, but we all find the same solution by the grace of Jesus Christ. Because when we deal with these fleshly desires, are we going to be changed and transformed by the Holy Spirit? In 2 Peter 2, you've got this The one thing that you can find in false teaching, they love money and they love immoral things. They go after what is perverse. They go after gain. And you see it when you go through this passage. I mean, he uses the example of Balaam. Balaam, if you just read the passage in the Old Testament, you think he's doing it right. But you look at cross-references on Balaam, you find out, no, God knew his heart. He was up to something no good. He was out for gain. He was out to take self-willed action, not for the good of others, but for the good of himself. And, And this is what he's talking about, not greedy for gain. He's not in it to make money. I think uh I was reading uh MacArthur's notes on these texts and and I think he's right. He says, you know, he goes through the passages that show that it's biblical for a pastor to earn a living. But what's not biblical is when the focus becomes money. When the focus becomes money, the focus is not on Christ. The focus is not on his church. The focus is not on his glory. The focus is on fleshly earthly, worldly things. I tell you, so much of, uh, if we just understood what the characteristics of, of leaders in the church was about, and we understood these consistent marks of heretics, we would have better ability to catch a lot of the people we see on TBN. I'm amazed sometimes. I'm not amazed that there's false teachers. I'm often amazed that people listen to them. And what's crazy is, is a lot of the people that I'm speaking of, it's like, you know, if the shoe fits, wear it kind of thing. I'm not saying every one, but the ones that fit the bill, what's sad is there's not a knowledge of what is taught, of what is healthy leadership and what is false leadership. And a lot of the people that unfortunately have shown themselves to be false teachers are clearly marked by very clear, predictable behavior that the word of God speaks about. He goes into the next passage here in Titus and he gives the positive. He goes to what they're not to be and then he lists what they are to be. He says they're to be hospitable. Hospitable, the one who... uh, they love strangers. They're they're friend. They're kind to strangers. It's somebody um, again. I think about the the church in Europe, and and I I, um, I was with uh, some brothers and sisters in Romania. I tell you, it's amazing. One of the one of the neatest examples of the reality of of the spirit at work is when you meet these people in places you've never been and immediately you have an affinity to these people that's undescribable because of the the fellowship of the spirit, because of the oneness we have in Christ. 
And these people that would take, whether it was in Myanmar, whether it was in Romania, whether it's been in other parts of the world where people, they seek to serve you, they seek to care for you, they seek to minister to your needs. And what is that? That's a mark of the spirit working in them. And he's saying, look, an elder in the church of Jesus Christ he needs to be someone who exemplifies a heartbeat for others and the way he deals with the stranger. Jesus said, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and repayment come to you. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. I'll tell you, isn't it humbling where sometimes the ministry that God has for our lives is not all these big things we dream up and have. I've been in situations before where I've had somebody right in front of me that had a need. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, you know what? I got a lot of important things to do. And it was as if, not in some audible voice, but in a way that the Holy Spirit just reminded me because of the word of God. No, the most important ministry is right here, right in front of you, not what you're seeking to go do. Hospitality, hospitality can be not only with strangers, it can be exemplified with other Christians it can be exemplified in so many different ways, but, but the key is to realize that that's the heartbeat of a godly leader. They're a lover of good. They're a lover of good. If you think of somebody who is a lover of evil, I, I remember, isn't it, it's sad, but it's a reality that it's sad that some people find the bad. You, it doesn't matter where they go, they find the wrong people. You ever notice that? Like, you want to be like, where, where are we finding each other? You've only been in this town 20, 30 minutes, and you're finding everybody that I want you to run from. What is going on? Well, th- here's the opposite. The lover of good is w- one individual said, those who lead the church should be known as friends of the godly and the virtuous. Now, think about it. That's the heartbeat. It's not that they're not friendly or kind to those that aren't, but they love that which is good. You put a brother or sister in Christ in their midst, one who loves righteousness, and they love them. Why? There's an affinity. There's a mark of the spirit in their life that longs for the good and the godly. That's what they're called to be lover of good. The two words that this word comes from, which you got to be careful with, but it's interesting here. It's like friend of the benevolent, friend of the good. They they, they care, they have a heartbeat for the good. The next word is self-controlled. You hear all the things are not to be, but then it says self-controlled. This is going to be used in chapter two, verse two, when he speaks about the older men. And in chapter two, verse five, when it speaks about how the older women are to model for the younger women in the church, self-control, it, 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 temperate, of a sound mind. He uses two words in this list that are very similar. This one right here and the last one in this verse that speaks about self-control. It's, it speaks about that whole idea of one who's under the control of another, self-controlled discreet, sober, 
temperate, of a sound mind. And then he uses the word upright, upright, conformable to what is right, pertaining to that which is just. You're getting into like words that are all related to righteousness. It's the same, the, the, the Greek word here is the same idea of the word. It relates to the root of righteousness, upright. It, it, it means uh, one definition in a lexicon means that one conforms in his actions to his constitutionally just character. This is, uh, if, you, if we begin to understand, you know, like theologians talk about the, um, the nature of man. The nature of man. Are we, are we neutral? Are we pretty good at the heart? I, you know, this really dates me, but all of my people that are 50 or older will remember the guy in the 80s, Donahue. Remember Phil Donahue? And I'll never forget, there was a guy on his show one time when I was a kid, and uh, Donahue was in, I've really just like, literally the whole crowd, half the crowd's like, who in the world are you talking about? He was a guy who, he was like a uh, Oprah before Oprah. He was like uh, Dr. Phil before Dr. Phil. And Donahue was a pistol, though. But he, he had this guy on there, and, and, and he was basically speaking the Christian worldview of, of sin and depravity. And he looked at him, and he said, you mean to tell me that that little child is evil? That little child is sinful. He was mocking the things of God. But here's what you have to understand. When you begin to realize that the Christian uh, truth of depravity can be seen not only in a child, but in your own heart, you begin to understand the only way that righteousness is going to be seen in my life is not going to be by my best attempt in order to be just in order to be right. It, It requires a transformation of the heart. That's when justification becomes a big deal because the Christian understanding of justification is is I'm not declared in right standing with God because I'm a good person. I'm declared in right standing with God through the merit and through the righteousness of Jesus. And here's what's amazing, though. It goes further. In the Christian's life, there's not just positional righteousness There's practical righteousness. Those who've been justified by faith are now enabled in their day-to-day life to demonstrate righteousness in their deeds. That's the gospel-changing power of Christ. And these are to be marked by being upright. The next one is the word holy, very similar words, but holy, set apart. Again, righteous, unpolluted, right as conformed to God and his laws. Positionally, if you're a believer and you've trusted in Christ, the message of the gospel says when God the Father looks at you, he sees not your sin, but he sees the holiness of Jesus that covers you. Now that's positional, but you're called to live holy. You're called to be who you are. It's sort of like, I told you before that uh, I played for this little Christian school in seventh grade. We were, we were terrible because it was a brand new school. Our girls team got beat 70 to nothing in a game. Literally, they didn't score. It was a great effort. And uh, 
but we had to dress up when we go on uh we were like, you know, it, it just seemed weird to me that we were wearing uh, shirts with ties when we go into a gym and lose by 56. I just thought, why, just, why don't we just wear our uniforms to, them to the game? You know, who cares? But, but they were teaching us something. They wanted us to represent something. They wanted us to be, they were like, you are a grace golden eagle and you're going to look like it. And when you show up somewhere, you're going to represent who you are. And here's what's amazing. By the grace of Jesus Christ, the leaders in the church are to live out of the reality that in God's sight, they've been made holy through the imputation of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And now their lives are to reflect who God has made them in Jesus. They're holy. The last one here is another word for self-control. It's the word disciplined. It's only used here in the New Testament. It's, it's self-control. It, it speaks of, again, that the Spirit has done this work. And here's what I'll leave you, leave you with this morning. I want you to consider something. What is it? I, I was reading uh, one place as I was studying, and, and I think that this helped me. One commentator said, note, these characteristics are not intended to be unique to elders. For in one form or another, they describe the ideal character of all Christian men and women. Their function here is to portray a morally well-rounded person who will not disgrace the Lord and his church. And I think what the commentator is saying is this, yes, while Paul is specific about what the elder's conduct in his leadership role should look like, it shouldn't be one of those lists where the rest of the people go, you know what, I'm off today. I can sit back and see whether or not I think our leaders ex exemplify these characteristics. Because this is describing a grace individual who's been changed by the gospel. This should be a list that makes us all look at our lives all ask hard questions, all run to Christ. And why is it that this individual is living this way? I want to leave you with four takeaways, real quick, concluding remarks of how this individual, how these leaders portray this. Number one, how can a man live this way? Number one, he is a man who is filled with the Holy Spirit. Quickly, Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery. Be filled with the Spirit. Galatians tells us what the Spirit produces in verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Sound familiar? Number one, he's a man filled with, with the Holy Spirit. Number two, by the grace of God, he is a man who is marked and controlled by the word of God. Colossians says, remember Paul's prayer to the church at Colossae? He says, and so from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. It would be like this. It would be like, if I were looking at you as the church and I said, look, my prayer for you 
is that you would be controlled by the word. And then it would be as if I said, and let me tell you what happens. When God's word controls your decision-making, when God's word renews your mind, when God's word fills your thoughts, when the knowledge of God becomes apparent in your life, this is what it looks like. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. So number one, he's a man filled with the spirit. Number two, he's a man who is marked and controlled by the word. Number three, he's a man who is strengthened in the inner man. A man who is strengthened in the inner man. You say, what do you mean by that? These are just ways that he's supposed to conduct himself. It's so much greater. For a man to live the way Titus 1, 5 through 9 speaks of, he has to experience what Paul prays for in Ephesians chapter 3 when he's praying for the church at Ephesus. And he says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Number four, he is a man who is abiding in Christ. All these are four ways of saying the same thing. Number one, he, he's a man filled with the Spirit. Number two, he's a man who is marked and controlled by the Word. Number three, he is a man who is strengthened in the inner man. Number four, he is a man who is abiding in Christ. And let me read to you what Jesus says as we close. In John 15, verse 4, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. So the elder has evidence of this taking place in his family life and evidence of this taking place in his personality and evidence of this taking place in his relationship with others. Let me ask you a question this morning. What does your family lives reveal about your current responses to Jesus? I remember studying the Proverbs years ago, and I was reading a book about Christ in the wisdom literature of the Bible. And the man made a profound comment. He said, you know, what does this mean? He says, if you're not a wise person, there's a problem you have with Christ because he's the one that makes us wise. And so if there's not wisdom being displayed in the life, ultimately it points to the reality that the issue is somewhere in my heart towards Jesus. I think the same applies here. What do our family lives reveal about our walk with Christ? What does our personality and our dealings with others reveal about our walk with Christ. And this morning, the good news of the gospel is 
He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The good news of the gospel is that Christ takes sinners, forgives them, pardons them, and by his grace changes them. So this morning, as we close, and we think about the characteristics of these leaders, and next week we get into their bold defense of the faith. Let's consider our own heart. Let's consider our own response to Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you, God, for the the truth of the word. And I pray that we would embrace it, we would be convicted by it, that we would submit to your truth, Lord, that it would instruct us, it would reprove us, it would correct us, it would train us. I pray for our church. I pray for our leadership. I pray for the character of our whole church body. I pray, oh God, that you would take the youngest here to the oldest here. And I pray those in Christ would show fruit of the transformation of your grace. And I pray, Lord, that those not in Christ would hear your good news and be changed by it and come into this faith and come into this salvation. I pray that you would grant them repentance that they might come into life. It's in Jesus' name we pray.